Well, hello there, and welcome to episode 37 of The Rock Podcast. For those about to pod, we salute you. In this episode, we look back at 2005. Good luck, Brian. <laughs> we take a look at the recent rock news and new releases. We discuss power trios. And finally, everyone's favourite part of the old podcast, Hidden Gem Time. So without further ado, here he is. Limavardi's finest, the podcaster in the north. How many nicknames has he got? We don't know. Here's Brian. <laughs> hey, man, how you doing? <laughs> I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, Brian. I'm doing all right. Do you know what? I was listening to the old uh, theme music there, and I thought one day we should play the entire, the entire thing in its entirety. Well, not of much left to talk about then. <laughs> oh, really? Is it that long? There's a couple of people asked me about that. That's that music. You know, who's it by and where's it come from and everything. So maybe we should um, we should just play it out at some point. Anyway, let's move on. Okay. So um, so last time we spoke, Brian, we talked about the uh, Taylor Hawkins gig, which took place at Wembley Stadium, and a couple of weekends ago, the uh, the Los Angeles uh, tribute gig took place at the LA Forum, a slightly more intimate venue, if a twenty thousand seat. Uh, arena can be intimate, but slightly more intimate than Wembley Stadium. And um, I wasn't—I didn't watch it live, Brian. I, I must admit, it was uh, way past my bedtime. Um, but the highlights, there's some, there's some highlights, weren't there? I mean, it was slightly different bill to the London gig, um, but but good all the same, wasn't it? It was for you. Yeah, I, I again, I didn't watch it live. Um, mm. Caught up on on YouTube to see all of the performances. It felt that the band, uh, certainly the Foo Fighters, were a lot more at ease with playing. It's it's as if the London gig was one where the the raw emotion um, w- was a challenge the first time they'd all mm-hmm. played together. And it really felt like a celebration in Los Angeles um, uh, where everybody seemed a lot more comfortable. Dave Grohl was smiling and... Um, you know, there, there, it was, it was excellent. He made a great comment where he called Taylor a musicologist and he said he yeah, was always, he was always playing, uh, he was always playing tunes. You know, he could hear him three blocks away when he drove up to the studio. And I thought it was interesting that, you know, um, you, you were hearing tunes by, uh, Jerry Rafferty right down the line, mm. which is, which is mm. a song I love. Um, and then you had, you know, Def Leppard with playing fo- um, Photograph with Miley Cyrus and Rock of Ages, Barracuda. It, it was just, it, it was as if here's a playlist of, 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 of Taylor's greatest tunes and I've got some of my pals to come out and, and play them. So it, it looked uh, like a lot more of a, you know, a, a polished show uh, in my yeah. view. I thought it was great. <clears throat> now, I'm with you. I um, highlights to me. You're right. You touched upon um, Miley Cyrus, who we talked about before, having a really good rock voice. Yes, she. If you remember, she did a, a version of "Nothing Else Matters," I think, on a Metallica tribute. Um, yeah, she got a really, really good voice, and she. Wow, did she look the part? Didn't oh she? <laughs> um, and, and and good on her. You know why not? Um, I tell you what, some little hidden gems. Dare I say? <laughs> Um, Mark King from Level 42 yes. popped up. And I have to say, one of my um, guilty pleasures is this song. The song you play, Something About You, 
by Level 42. Uh, that's a great song. Put that on the old playlist. Brian, please. I will um, do. Absolutely. And uh, that was good. And um, Joan Jett opened the proceedings. As you said, the, the, the version of Barracuda with, with Pink, another fantastic rock voice. Clearly, you know, very popular in pop kind of genre, pop mm. arena, as it were, but fantastic rock voice. And to, to hit the notes of Barracuda. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I was slightly, um, I was wondering what was happening with um, Alanis Mor- Morissette's performance of You Ought to Know. Uh, she seemed, she seemed to be wanting to get her steps up. <laughs> so all she did was walk across <laughs> Dagley, Diagonal patterns across the arena. That's very quite true. interesting. I do like that song though. Um, and as as we know, um, uh, Taylor Hawkins was her touring drummer back yeah. in the back in the, the mid nineties. Joe Elliott sh- uh, told an interesting story um, about first bumping into Taylor Hawkins in a in a record store in uh, Laguna Hills, I think it was, uh, or music store. Um, the other thing is, if you're watching the the the, uh, the highlights, there's there's a couple of kind of um, factors or a couple of elements will be which will be consistent with the with the London gig. One, it was very well very well rehearsed. Yeah. Secondly, there's a lot of hugging. Thirdly, there's a lot of swearing. <laughs> um, so don't watch it with grandma necessarily. Necessarily. Yeah. Um, other sort of hidden gems, as it were. Um, Sebastian Bach. Giza Butler, Lars Ulrich, um, did Supernaut. Which a is, song I didn't it, know. I didn't know um, that exactly. one. No. Um, and, and, and Paranoid, of course, but um, did a really good version of Supernaut. Um, I didn't play. Tony wasn't there, but uh, Giza said it was great. Had a great time. Um, and uh, Rush. Now, when I was watching the Rush piece uh-huh. so it was uh it was getty and alex and uh, dave grohl for Twenty One Twelve overture again yeah uh, chad smith joined them joined them for working man yes. this time and danny carey from tool Oofed. Oofed. Uh, <laughs> joined them for yyz now i was thinking to myself when i was watching this i'm wondering what my mike portnoy makes of this because um He's obviously a massive Rush fan, and I would have thought it's a slightly sort of tinge with envy that he was watching those other guys. But anyway, um, that was that. Um, and of course, our man um, Wolfgang Van Halen shredding oh. again. Fantastic, wasn't it? Panama. He played Panama. <laughs> mm. um, brilliant. And he he, brilliant. he was brilliant. And it was it was it was kind of nice that 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 same uh, super group was kept together and they played, you know, Panama and Hot for a Teacher and, and uh Wolfgang was very uh he he was he was phenomenal. He really was. He was, he, he was good. Um another and you so- can't help but like him, can you? You can't help but want to give him a big old hug, Wolfgang Van Halen. And uh, as you say, Adrian abetted by Josh Freeze again and, and Justin Hawkins mm-hmm. on the vocals. Wouldn't that be great if they became a proper <laughs> proper band? Yeah, doing Van Halen songs. <laughs> well, well, interestingly, um, obviously, um, there's been a few of the ex Van Halen members have said on the back of how successful and how poignant the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert have been. You know, Sammy Hagar's come out and said it would be really nice if we could do something for Eddie, and and mm. 
Wolfgang's kind of come out and I think he's mm. he's felt by playing his dad's music at the two tribute concerts, he's done. He's played mm. he's tri- he's done a tribute to his dad by playing Panama and he has no interest in playing Van Halen material. So in in some ways I think Wolfgang's, you know, um paid tribute to his dad, as Rush have paid tribute, I think, to Neil Peart as well too. So yeah. The likelihood of an Eddie Van Halen tribute concert, um, I think, is less and less because the longer it goes, you know, and and you need you need Wolfgang there, yeah, you know, to, to do it. But um, so another uh, supergroup that was put together for the uh, tribute concert was the, the Seattle supergroup, which had um, members of Soundgarden and the surviving members of Nirvana, fronted by the wonderful Taylor Mumson. Uh, from the Pretty Reckless, and they did a couple of Soundgarden tracks, The Day I Try to Live, and obviously Black Hole Sun. And I thought that was fantastic. It was just, mm. it was, it was just nice that uh, the um, the Seattle guys got together and made it. They made a very, very nice sound together. You know, mm. I thought I thought that worked very, very well. Sometimes you you crunch bands together, and it doesn't work. But I thought that was really lovely. And Black Hole Sun was quite um, something special. She's a great singer. And I'm going to see her next month. And then finally, yeah, so uh, some Queen songs um, were performed, um, including Under Pressure and Somebody to Love, which was great. Um, What was interesting, a a different variety of drummers joined the Foo Fighters. Um, Brad Wilk was there. Travis Barker was back. Um, Matt Cameron was it was a fantastic drummer. We saw oh, him in the summer, of course, with yeah, Pearl Jam. Yeah. Great haircut, very kind of like, you know, accountant haircut, a great drummer. Um, Omar Hakim, the ubiquitous Omar Hakim. I just like saying Omar Hakim. Mm-hmm. Such a good name, isn't it? It's fabulous. Name. Uh, and of course, uh, Taylor's Taylor's son, Shane. Shane Hawkins did a couple of songs, My Hero and I'll Stick Around. And of course, um, Chad Smith was back behind the skins as well. Yeah. So again, there was a... Was there an audition process? I don't know. I'm not convinced that the Food Fighters will continue, frankly. I don't know. There's something inside me that says there's a there's a similarity between when John Bonham died back in 1980. Led Zepp called it a day. And uh, I have a nasty but understandable sympathetic feeling that maybe this is the end of the Food Fighters. I don't know. I don't know. Of course, I don't know. But you never know. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be surprised. So that was the... Um, that was the Taylor Hawkins tribute show at the LA Forum, which looked remarkably like the O2. It did, didn't it? Hmm. Mm. But we'll say, we, maybe we should go. We should go there one day, Brian. We should go to the LA Forum. We should make a special effort. Do a podcast live from the LA Forum. Maybe we should. Because remember, we, we originally, we first started talking about doing it from a pub. <laughs> and now we've we've branched out. <laughs> To doing it from the LA Forum, <laughs> and we could go to the and we could go to the Rainbow Bar and Grill. We could. Trouble is, though, when we try to do these outside broadcast type sort of recordings, we're so drunk that they, they <laughs> turn out terribly. So or I'm go, sleeping, or you're asleep, <laughs> or I'm drunk and asleep, or any combination thereof. Anyway, in other news, Brian. In other news, uh, I I went to see the Dio. Dreamers Never Die um, documentary at the weekend. It's um, 
obviously before it comes out on uh, streaming services and probably will come out on DVD as well too, in selected theatres and cinemas across the country and across the world, um, they they had it shown. And luckily in Edinburgh at the Cameo, uh, cinema, they were showing it on Sunday evening. I went to see it. Um, I thought it was um, a, a nice trot through Ronnie James Dio's career, starting out as a, a crooner in the fifties. Fifties, mm. Matt. He was singing in the fifties, um, and then all the way through to his, um, you know, his untimely passing. And really, you just learnt. What a phenomenal singer he is. What a nice guy. I have to say one of the takeaways um, from Ronnie James Dio, from a lot of the fans who were um, interviewed and commented during the film, there was people who, he would he would see them at a gig and then 20 years later, he would remember their name and ask them, oh, the last time I saw you, your dad wasn't well. Mm. And Ronnie would, and Rudy Sarzo, who w- was in Dio, uh, um, in, in the later incarnations, he was sort of sitting there going, how does Ronnie remember all of these people's names? So he, he seemed a really mm. personable person, um, stuck to his guns musically. Um, you know, he left <laughs> he left Rainbow whenever Richie Blackmore wanted to, he wanted to um, conquer America. So when Since You've Been Gone <laughs> was presented to Ronnie, it was like, I'm out of here. Um, so oh, really? very, very, yeah, very, very principled. Um, and it was like, you know, the, the, what Rainbow did well, as you and I love the, the Dungeons and Dragons, the, the, the man and the man and the silver mountain stuff. Um, mm. you know, he was never going to go into since you've been gone and, and the, the, the Graham Bonnet hero. And he just, he went, um, uh, lots of his alumni, you know, great singers that, that, you know, Glenn Hughes, Rob Halford, Geezer. Uh, Tony, I- Tony Iommi, lots of people um, came in. And when you think of through his career, he joined Rainbow. I know Richie, Richie was kind of, what am I going to do? I'm out of purple. Took Rainbow to a certain level. Mm-hmm. He joined Black Sabbath when Ozzy had mm-hmm. left and they were a little bit rudderless. And they come up with Heaven and Hell. Um, I think two hours as a, if you're coming to Ronnie James Dio and you're an occasional fan, I think you'll walk away and you go, what an amazing singer he is. But for people who are big fans of Ronnie James Dio, as I am, mm. it could quite easily have been a three-part documentary map. And you mm. could have focused on the rainbow years. You could have focused on the 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 Black Sabbath era. And you could have done his solo albums. To me, Holy Diver, Heaven and Hell, and Rainbow Rising are three of the best rock albums of all time, and and they Absolutely. are they're worthy of a classic albums piece. Mm, so I just mm. thought it was too short. Uh, you know, you could have interviewed Bob Daisley. You know, uh, it, it was it was great. I really enjoyed it. And and for rock fans out there, go and watch it because overdue for for me, the voice of heavy metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very good. Very good. Looking forward to seeing it. Something we need to mention, by the way, last time we uh, we spoke, we were talking about the new album from Revival Black. Yeah. And um, it was funny because the next day, almost, Dan Byrne, who I've met a few times, he's a really, really nice guy. Um, 
and uh, he sung with Mike Gray's band and obviously Mike uh, with Revival Black, a tremendous singer. I, I first met him at a festival and he did karaoke and I said to him, you should be in a band. He says, I am. <laughs> we're, we're playing we're playing at the Next Planet Rock uh, event and we're opening the show. I was like, well, okay, great, good luck. And I, was, I bumped into him a few times over the months and um, I saw him at Steelhouse and um, he uh, didn't give any any kind of indication that he was splitting up from Rival Black. They had the new album coming out and but all of a sudden, on the uh, literally a few days after the album, which was which is excellent. Oh, it's a brilliant way, album. Um it was released. Um, Dan um, announced that he was leaving to pursue his own kind of solo career. What that will turn into, we don't know. Uh, won't be with Mike Gray. Mike Gray's gone to live in America, so um, he's no longer um, performing in this country for sure. Um, and Kim Jennett, who has joined um, Revival Blake, be interested to see how that plays out, of course. Yeah. And there seems to be a you know fairly amicable split, and the the guys uh, from Revival Black have, have, have welcomed Kim into the band and we'll see how that plays out. Kim had, had sung with Mike Gray, so there's a sort of a, a link there. Um, but I just thought, oh no, have we given them the, the kiss of death? We bigged up the album. We did, didn't we? We were like, what a um, fantastic album. And then it's like... And uh, all of a sudden... But it's still worth checking out. Um, the album that came out a few weeks ago uh, from Revival Black and... Um, yeah, it was an in- I thought it was an interesting, interesting sort of, interesting move, really, to leave just after the the albums come out. Yeah, I, I, for me, I, as you say, very amicable. Um, and and Dan's lovely. You know, he's he, he's, lo- and and I'm sure the other the other guys in Revival Back are are nice guys as well too. But usually, you would have thought if it if it's going to be amicable and you've got a tour coming up that's going to support the album, you would have thought, mm. um. Why not? Why not tour the album? Get do the promo for the album, and then uh, do the cycle, do the album tour, mm. and then after the 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 tour, then go your separate ways. So then, if you're gonna bring a new singer in, you can do that with new material rather than not tour the album. I, that's the bit I find quite strange. But Kim's a great singer. I've, I I follow mm. Kim on Facebook. And she's always putting, you know, uh, things that she's doing up vocally, and she's a, mm. she's fantastic. But um, mm. yeah, I, I'm, I agree with you. Timing of it was a bit uh, a bit strange because they had some momentum. They've been playing festivals. Dan's out there playing with Mike Gray, so there was there was you know people were looking forward to the album. Lots of pre orders. So yeah, kind of a little bit of a damp squid, if I'm being honest. Yeah, yeah, it's Absolutely. a shame. But we wish them well, Revival Black. We do. And, uh, and Dan, of course, Dan Bird, nice guy. Look forward to bumping into him again at festivals, yeah. as I've done a few times over the years. Um, so, new releases. Yes. Now, in 37 podcasts, I've got a feeling, and I could be wrong, we've mentioned the mighty Diamond Head <laughs> once or twice. <laughs> now, Di- and Diamond Head... Have a new album out. I say new, so I've got it here actually, and it's magnificent. So basically, they've remastered their uh, pre nineteen eighty back catalogue. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> Try and be interested. Bro. I am. I am. I am. Um, they've remastered their um, uh, their, their pre nineteen eighty back catalogue, including their seminal first album, Lightning to the Nations which I bought back in 1980 or, or thereabouts. Um, and they've, they've added in some uh, original mixes of um, 
songs like uh, Sweet and Innocent and uh, The Ubiquitous Am I Evil. So uh, while they're checking out, I bought, I've done a Brian. I bought the whole deluxe package, triple album T-shirt, the whole kit and caboodle. You've done me proud, mate. If you're going to be a fan, you've got to... You've got to go all the way in. And you know what? Bands only make money these days on merch and exactly. physical kind product. Of yep. Exactly. That's kind of why I did it, really, in a way. Yep. No, I, I did it because I'm a completist. Um, but no, so check it out. Uh, it's it's uh, You can stream it, and it's good. Yeah. It's uh, It's got that kind of Nawabam feel to it, even though it's been sort of re- remastered and so on. And um, yeah, check it out. Anyway. And other new releases as well too. We've mm. we've we've talked about we've talked about the uh, one the lead singer of Black Sabbath, the mm. original lead singer of Black Sabbath. It's just uh, released a couple of weeks ago. His thirteenth studio album. Wow. Yes. Which was Patient Number Nine from Mister Ozzy Osbourne. And now I've watched you know on this podcast. I would, I would hope by the time we will still be going, this podcast will be going by the time Aussie tours with Judas Priest maybe in 20... Is it 2023 or 2024? Next year, 23. Okay, right, let, mm. fingers crossed. But um, obviously, um, Aussie's done a few things of late. He did the um, Commonwealth Games with Tony... He's done a little halftime show um, with with his solo band. Um, and I listened to the album. I wasn't expecting much, but I have to say I was very, very impressed with the songwriting. Um, obviously, it's he's got... Uh, he seems to have a studio band now, which mm. which comprises of, obviously, Andrew Watt, who, who uh, is his main producer on the album. But it seems to be around... Chad Smith is drum is drumming on it. Duff McKagan, and mm. then the guitarists on it can be anything from Tony Iommi, Jeff Beck, Zach, Mike McCready from uh, Pearl Jam, and it actually flows really, really nicely as an album. And there's a mm. couple of co-writes on it with um, uh, with with Tony Iommi as well. T- uh, Tony Iommi, or not so much co-writes, but featuring Tony songs mm. like No Escape from Now. And degradation rules, which is great. I was pleasantly surprised, Matt. Doesn't break any new ground for Ozzy, but no. as a as an album, I thought it was. Re- I th- I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, good. Well, I listened to it a few times when I was out walking the dog. Yeah, of course. Uh-huh. As you as, as I often do when it comes to albums, and um, you're right. He's not he's not reinventing himself by any means. Uh, good to good to hear the collaborations with uh, Tony Iommi. Of course, uh, as you say, Jeff Beck's on there. Eric Clapton's on there. So he's got some. Um, he's got some famous friends, of course. And I think a bit like Dave Grohl. If you if you get a call from Ozzy saying, "Do you want to play on my new album?" I'd probably say, "Yeah, okay, great, yeah, count me in." Um, unless you're Jimmy Page, <laughs> he said no. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Jimmy wasn't interested, was he? I think he wasn't keen on the whole kind of uh, kind of dialing it in yeah. type uh, yeah. feel to it, which is fair enough. Um, but uh, yeah, I think uh, well, well worth a listen. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, good old Aussie. You know, he's suffering at the moment. I think he's got early onset of Parkinson's disease and yeah. he's had one or two ups and downs. So we wish him well. Yeah. Um, 
Billy Idol's got a new song out called The Cage. And uh, if you if you thought Billy Idol was all kind of uh, White Wedding and uh, Rebel Yell and everything, check out his new song called The Cage. It's really good. Uh-huh. And he seems to have uh, kind of matured, let's say, into the 21st century as a singer. So uh, check that out. Um, new live EP from... We don't get EPs very much anymore, do we? New live EP from Smith Cotson, uh, recorded uh, mainly in this country, which is nice. So there's plenty of new music out for everyone to... Uh, to get uh, get hold of and have a good, have a good listen to. Cool. So last time, Brian, I gave you the year two thousand and five to uh, reminisce about a mere how long ago was it? Seventeen <laughs> years ago. Oh, brilliant! Seventeen years. Or, of course, if you're listening <laughs> in twenty one. Hundred, mere ninety-five years ago. So, um, Brian, take us back to two thousand and five. How was it for you? Two thousand five. Um, uh, two thousand five. Good year for gigs. Not, not. Didn't go to massive, uh, massive amount of gigs. Um, quite. Um, I would probably pick out three gigs in two thousand five, which, uh, which I remember well. Um, two thousand five. I went to see um, you two in Hamden. Um, that would have been around the time of the um, the G8 summit that was happening in Scotland at the time. Um, I know I remember it quite well that Bono was, um, uh, you know, uh, supporting that and campaigning very well for the drop the debt, I think, as it was at the time. But they still mm-hmm. put on a great show. Um, I went to see Brian Adams again for the gazillionth time. Um, he was playing in the SEC. Uh, oh, Brian always puts on a great show. But the surprise for me in 2005 was I got to see Velvet Revolver. Mm. Um, And uh, I went to see them in the Newcastle Arena. Now, um, the the first album, I thought thought as a band, they sounded really, really good for a supergroup. Thank you. And uh, Scott Wielden as a lead singer was just, was fantastic. But whenever they did the um, the Guns N' Roses material, I missed Axel. But I always mm. remember the show. I thought they were tight as anything. You know, Slash was on top form. They were they were a well oiled machine by the time they got to the UK. So I'm 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 pleased I got to see Velvet Revolver um, when they all seemed to be fighting fit at that time. So those are the three gigs. Um, other things to remember in 2005. Obviously, I've talked about the G8 summit. So that was around about Live Eight. So that was um, uh, Pink Floyd got back together, the um, the classic lineup with Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore, and played that classic, amazing set of uh, you know "Wish You Were Here," "Comfortably Numb," um, which mm. was brilliant. And for you and I, we lost uh, a musical icon in two thousand and five. We lost Tommy Vance. Mm. Uh, we lost Tommy Vance in uh, in, in two thousand and five. Um, albums wise. Um, an eclectic mix of albums, Matt, in 2005. Um, the ones I'll go with, um, this this band seems to get pillared from <laughs> whenever you mention them. And I think they're a great band. Be interested in your view of them. Um, Nickelback. Nickelback released um, all, um, all the Right Reasons, which obviously have the, um, uh, the big single off, uh, off the album, 
was was Rockstar, but one of my personal favourites, which is Photograph. It's probably my favourite yeah. um, uh, Nickelback tune. That is just such a great... It's just a, a really, really solid album. Um, um, so I, I really... Uh, in 2005, I thought that was a great album. Audio Slave brought out um, Out of Exile. Um, mm-hmm. Again... Building on the on the debut album, uh, it got nominated for for Grammys for best album, and then two small albums. I'll mention. You know me; I love my projects. Um, there was a project from Frontier Records, um, surprise, surprise, and it was called The Mob. Mm-hmm. And the Mob had Doug Pinnock from Kings X. Um, it had the lead guitarist from Winger, Red Beach. And the lead vocalist and drummer, Kelly Gehe, from Night Ranger. And they were called The Mob. They only did the one album, it's Project. But it's a really, really strong album. It's very melodic rock. It, it's in that Night Ranger, uh, winger type feel. But I loved the album. Sure. It was a really, really good album. And then the final one, um, which is probably more of an indie rock album. A, a great band um, from... Uh, from the UK, I love. I played this album to death. Um, it's a band called Longview. Um, it, I remember at the time it got a lot of advertising on the telly, um, and it was an album called Mercury. It's the only album they ever did, um, and and it's some fantastic tracks on it. Rob Rob McVeigh was the main singer and guitarist, and that is my whistle stop tour through two thousand and five, mate. Good year. Wow. How about you? That was a whistle-stop tour, wasn't it? Oh, my goodness. Um, well, yeah, similar, actually. I saw... Um, I went to that U2 tour as well at uh, Twickenham Stadium. Well, you and I went to see uh, Maiden a couple of years after that, actually. Did I? And uh, it turned out that my uh, my wife was there. I didn't know her then. Kate, my uh-huh. wife. She was there. Um, I didn't... I mean, I may have bumped into her. You never you know. may have done. I may have kind of opened the door for her. Sliding sort of doors. Other. No, they were just, you opened the normal doors there, I seem to recall. But I'd, I may have opened the normal door for her and she might have gone in and said, thank you. Yeah. But we, we shall never know. We will never know. We shall never know. <laughs> I, saw, um, I saw Judas Priest <clears throat> on the uh, um, Angel of Retribution tour. They were on uh, with a, 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 a little band called the Scorpions opening for them. Uh-huh. That was quite a double bill. Hammersmith Odeon. Um, that's a good album. Um, Angel of Retribution. Judas Rising is a good song. Uh, I mean, classic kind of priest songs. Demonizer. I mean, what's that about? It's a love song, maybe? We don't know. Hellrider. I mean, come on. And, and, a, bank, and a song called Loch Ness, which is, uh, which is all of 13 and a half minutes long. I'll give you, I'll leave it to you to think about what that's about. Okay. Um, so, so uh, Diamond Head headlined the, uh, this is true actually, the 25th anniversary of Nwobham at the Astoria in London. In fact, uh, there's a DVD of it, which I'm on, <laughs> complete with the uh, goatee and brown leather jacket. I don't know what I was thinking in those days. In fact, my jacket and my beard matched in terms of colour. But that's because <laughs> it's, it's grey now, the old beard, sadly. Um. Anyway, so that was 2005 gigs-wise. Um, albums, I think the standout one for me was Queen. Queen and Paul Rogers 
Return of the Champions <laughs> live album. Did you not like that? <laughs> <clears throat> Please, please continue with your review of your album of choice. <laughs> no, I did enjoy that. Um, I mean, I liked Paul Rogers with Queen. I know you weren't a big fan, but I did. I did like him, and um, I think he did did justice to the to the Queen songs. And they uh, did put in some um, classic free and bad company songs to to uh, to placate Mister Rogers. Yes, um, which is nice. Um, Foos brought out in your honour. Uh, standout song from there is Best of You and um, Robert Plant one of his many solo albums Mighty Rearranger which is worth a listen it's that classic kind of plant going uh, left of centre um, Shine a Light is the um, is the sort of standout song on the album um, yeah all in all good year, good year. Um, looking back it was uh you know, good year for gigs and and albums to some extent. It's certainly better than two, the year two thousand, Brian. The, the, they will take a long it'll t- it, the, the the barren desert <laughs> <laughs> of music yes. in two thousand. Do you know what? Can you imagine if we had known each other in the year two thousand, we could have recorded mm. an album and we may have been millionaires now in that That's barren, true, desolate. <laughs> You and I met in two thousand one, didn't we? Yes. We, 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 yeah. if, who knows? We could have we could have recorded our uh, Robson and Jerome rock album and hmm. and yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, well, we should still do that. You know. Yeah. I mean, you can play the guitar a little bit, not very well, but you can play a bit. I can sing a little bit, not very well, but a bit. Exactly. And so you you never know. Anyway, so that was uh, that was two thousand five. In time honoured fashion, then, as you gave me two thousand five, it is my. Yes turn to provide you with the year. Okay. I'm getting this podcast thing now. Yeah, slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. Um, I would like to give you, uh, still in the 2000s, I'd like to give you 2017. Oh, okay. A mere... Five years ago. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, I look forward to that, 2017. Uh, should better remember that quite easily. So, Matt, isn't it interesting that... We know we've talked the last couple of episodes about, uh, about the Taylor Hawkins tribute concert and many of the acts that you and I were both looking forward to, Rush, the reformed Supergrass, um, them Crooked Vultures and the James Gang were all three pieces. Mm. And it got you and I thinking about three pieces and power trios and who, who we thought were our favourites why do power trios work? Why do three pieces work in some mm. of our favourite bands? That, that's what we wanted to talk about in this segment of the show. Yeah. My my question is why power trio? Why are they called power trios? I know, I mean, everyone by definition is powerful because you've got amplification. But why power trio? You don't have a kind of a fabulous four piece or a fantastic five piece, do you? Or a Stupendous. Anyway, never mind. Um, you get the general idea. I but do. Yes, power trios. Power trios. And um, yeah, I was thinking about this actually because the, uh, there's the, there's not many, is there? I mean, there's there's that little old band from Texas that you talk about once or twice. We spoke about once or twice. King's X. This is easy talk. <laughs> I couldn't think of many. I thought, well, that, is that it? 
and then and then I started to have a, a thing, and there's loads, isn't there? Just <laughs> and I wonder whether it's because and it's and it's always uh, a singing bass player or a singing guitarist, uh-huh. and um, I don't know why you would. I suppose in a way you'd think, well, look, I can play bass and sing, so I don't need a singer. Or I can I can play the guitar and sing, so I don't need a separate singer. So it, it becomes that sort of logical, sort of pragmatic statement, doesn't it? As opposed to, I can play the guitar, he can play the bass, we're not very good at singing, let's get a singer. So I suppose it's a sort of logical logical thing, really. But a thing, this power trio thing mm-hmm. has been developed. And of course it all started with Cream, didn't it? It did. They were the... And I read this, and I quote, the prototypical power trio. I love that. Prototypical. And it, I suppose they were, really, um, back in the sort of mid-60s. Yeah. Jack Bruce, Eric Clapton, and Ginger Baker, of course. And um, a lot of bands have been influenced by them, of course. And, I mean, uh, Rush made no secret of the fact they were heavily influenced by that kind of virtuoso playing. Because the reason that they chose Cream, and, I, and this is this might be apocryphal, but they um, they they felt well, we're the cream of the crop, we're the best. He's the best drummer, I'm the best guitarist, he's yeah. the best bass player. So why not Cream? Um, and Rush, very similarly, were were, were and are uh, uh, virtuoso. Those remaining members are virtuoso players. So um, that's yeah. I guess that's where it all started. Yeah, and and you know around that time in sixty. 66, I think, was when uh, Cream got going. Obviously, uh, Jimi Hendrix then came across um, to to the UK. And, and you know, Chas Chandler went, <laughs> right, you know, and I need, to, I need to build a band around Jimi. So what does he do? He builds, a, a, uh, you know, a, a trio um, of, you know, Mitch Mitchell, um, Jimi. And the bass player. No, 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 Redding, of course. Thank you. That's a good save. Thanks, Matt. No Redding. No Redding. Who actually was a guitar player, wasn't a bass player. He, he had to get converted into being a bass player. He was originally a guitar player. Um, Is that right? Yeah, he was. Uh, okay. But, but, but I often, yeah. So I, 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 you know, that's, that, so in some ways, um, trio, you know, more money goes around for a trio. Um, mm. And and if you've got a lead, you know, you can imagine if you've got a lead singer out there, and all he's doing is shaking a tambourine, etc. He's he, everybody, everybody in a power trio is possibly doing at least one job or possibly two jobs. You could be, mm. you know, singing back background vocals, unless you're Getty Lee and you're doing twelve jobs, which is like, yes, true. <laughs> but but you know, you're, you're fully employed in a power trio. Mm. That's true, actually. Yeah, you're right. There's no kind of because speaking as a singer in a in a four or five piece band as I've been over the years, uh-huh. there's a little bit of kind of awkwardness when you're sort of there's a solo going on. You think, what do I do now? Uh-huh. I mean, it's it's not long enough for me to go off and you know have a lie down or anything. Um, uh, I might as well just hang around. So you're right. I mean, it takes away that embarrassing moment for the singer, isn't it, really? Yeah. And uh, that probably is the essence of why there are para- paratrios, to reduce the amount of embarrassment on stage. Um, <laughs> but you're right. I mean, that those were the uh, the, the early power, power trios. Then Lizzie, you, you mentioned them one or two thousand times on this podcast. They started as, as, a, um, as a three-piece, didn't they? With Eric Bell and Brian Downey and, of course, the singing bass player, 
slash front man that was Phil Lynott. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they started off as a, a as again a trio and a, a blues based uh, folky um, in terms of of their material, and then I, again. Um, uh, when Eric Bell left, you know, they bring in Gary Moore and then Gary Moore leaves and then Phil Lynott goes, maybe trios is not the way to go. <laughs> maybe mm. we need a spare guitar player. So you go to a four piece. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it started. And, and some of that early, some of that early Lizzie stuff as a three piece is very progressive, very, mm. uh, you know, they're, you know, they're, yeah, the, the, the first album is, is it's quite it's quite progressive rock in some ways, quite bluesy. It's really good. Mm. Yeah. And for Ireland seems to have spawned several three-piece taste, of course, um, with your man, Rory Gallagher. And then, and then more moving through the 70s, Mama's Boys, of course. Yeah. yeah. From your part of the world. Yeah. Um, Up the north. Originally were a, a three-piece, of course, the three McManus brothers. Yeah. Um, taste, of course, was Rory Gallagher, of course, for those who don't know. And and uh, who else is in that band? Remind me, Brian. Jerry McAvoy, yeah, Brandon O'Neill, <laughs> Ted Mc. Do you want me to go through the entire? <laughs> no, 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 no. no, no. no. But but uh, Rory, um, Rory, um, in the latter part of his career, uh, went back to a three piece for many years, particularly in the seventies. He had he had a keyboard player um, on stage with him, um, so he, yeah. he he moved to a four piece. But classic Rory and some of the albums that he did, um, probably top priority in 1979 was, you know, his power, tra- he had Ted McKenna, Ted mm. McKenna from Michael Schenker and Sensational Arvix Harvey Band um, mm. and Jerry. That was a real three piece. Um, and yeah, he Rory, Rory was work. And maybe, do you know what, Matt? Talking about dynamics. You know, some guitarists play better on their own. Mm. You know, you look at, you look at, you think of all of the great guitar players that we've talked about in previous shows. I could never see Richie Blackmore. (laughs) Richie Blackmore is never going to share a stage with another guitar player. Eddie Van Halen, you know, Mm. Eddie, you know. So I do think if you've got somebody, you know, I I think some of the great guitar players uh, maybe struggled to play nice with another player on stage. That's a good point. That's a very good point. And I think there's an element of that as well. Um, you're right in terms of why why there are three pieces. The other thing, you, and you touched upon with uh, Rory Gallagher, is is augmenting the, the band for live performances. Because the only limitation when you've got three of you is that, you know, during the solo, all you've got, all you've got behind the, the solo is the, the drums and the bass, you haven't, unless you've got kind yeah. of hidden, hidden players, yeah. which has happened. But subsequently... Uh, you talk about bands like Green Day, when you see them live, you know, there's about five of them. Yeah. There's obviously the basic three, Mike Dunn and um and uh Trey Cool and and, and um Billy. Billy Billy Joe Armstrong, thank yep. you. <laughs> um but then of course they're augmented by the rest of the band. Um and um but going back to this sort of seventies, because we mustn't forget Budgie. But you were one of those, again, one of those bands that sometimes for some reason gets kind of labelled with the sort of New Album uh, tag, but they were, they they started the, in, the, in the early 70s. Yeah. And, um, and I guess they stay pretty sort of true to their, true to their roots. Um, 
And uh, again, when we're checking out, they did some seminal stuff back in the day. Um, Bread fan, of course, the song that everyone knows from very from much. Budgie. Yeah, yeah. But blessed with blessed again. I think you need players that can play to kind of fill the fill the space. You need a, a solid drummer. You need a, a, a probably a very kind of uh, experimental bass player, and obviously a you know a guitarist that could play riffs and and lead. Um, and they they certainly had that in uh, in spades. We can't we can't uh, f- not mention the great ZZ Top, of course. The other band from Texas. <laughs> it started, I think it started as a four or five piece, possibly in the late 60s, but obviously traditionally are uh, well known as since about 1969. Yeah. To the present day, despite the fact Darcy Hill passed away a couple of years ago, um, are still a still three piece. And when you see them, you don't, you don't, they don't, they don't need their augmentation on stage. They? they just, they just play the songs and, very similar to the records yeah. where there's not much overdubbing and or backtrack, uh, double tracking or anything like that. Um, but yeah, they're probably the, uh, the, the three piece that everyone, everyone knows about. And similarly, the other one, the other kind of household name, certainly as a result of their success in the late seventies, early eighties is um, the mighty motorhead who did go through periods of being a four piece. That's correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. With a kind of the, cl- the classic, the classic three piece. Um, with Lemmy, Filthy Phil, and uh, that's really where I got into into rock around sort of bomber overkill album of nineteen seventy nine, and and uh, yeah, I I I think, but I think Motorhead, um, again, Eddie Eddie was a very very good rhythm player, and mm. I, I just the dynam- the the chemistry of that band as a three piece worked very very well, um. And yeah, it's 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 interesting that when Brian Robertson replaced Eddie, yeah, they they kept the chemistry wasn't there as a three piece in my view. Um, and then in order to replace uh, in order to replace Eddie, you needed Wurzel and Phil to come in yeah. and 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 bring that sound up. So yeah, it's it, it is interesting the, the 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 chemistry where you know. You know, you you think of modern day bands. You know, the Stereophonics started out as a three piece. You know, yep. and and that was, you know, probably and and I think they may have, actually they started out as a, a five piece and then they whittled it down to to the three piece that we that we that they started out and they sounded great as a, I saw them as a three piece and they were fantastic. And don't forget, mm. don't forget Uncle Glenn. I can't forget How Uncle Glenn. Uncle Glenn with trapeze. You know, mm. obviously. With Mel Galley, Dave Holland, um, you know, Trapeze, very funky, but as a three-piece, were were you know uh, fantastic in those uh, around that time as well too. And I, I thought it's interesting that whenever Richie was getting itchy feet um, <clears throat> around the time after, you know, when when he was after the recording of Burn, he went, remember he went off with uh, Ian Pace. And was going to pull a, a band together with Phil Lynott again, yeah. a three-piece. So yeah. I suppose, uh, yeah, it seems to work if you're if you've got a guitar player who's um, either a good singer or willing to do all of the bits and bobs and able to fill out the sound. A three-piece works very, very well. Mm. What about so, is, so the sixties and seventies? What about the eighties? Any 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 power trio of note in the eighties and beyond? 
apart from King's X. You mean? Well, I, we're not um, talking about King. I, King King's X is given. <laughs> no one, no one spawned one or two. Um, I remember seeing Tank, um, uh, three piece, uh, Algy Ward. We've been in the Damned and the Brabs Brothers. Uh-huh. Um, sporting Diamond Head. That was a strange marriage back in 1982. Um, Angel Witch. Well worth checking out their their first couple of albums. Tremendous. Um, and really should have been one of the kind of the uh, the cream of the Nawabam crop. Um, Rock Goddess, three piece, uh, three, three girls. Um, only recently caught it a day in 40 odd years on from... Um, from uh, Nwabam. Um, so there's a few. There were a few uh, back in the day. Um, uh, of course, the police, uh-huh. a little known band, sort of thrown together in the late 70s. They had a little bit of success, didn't they? Um, I seem to recall. I, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um, and then moving into the 90s, uh, Nirvana, of course. Again, similarly, had a bit of success, didn't they? I don't know what happened to that drummer they had. He was pretty good. He, yeah, he kind of went, he went off, did some demos, and yeah, whatever became of whatever became of David Grohl. That's right. Um, and in the two thousands, there have been, as you said earlier, one or two of those um, those groups that have come together from other bands. I forget what they're called again, bro. What are they called? Silver um, groups. Silver groups. That's it. Winery <laughs> dogs. We've mentioned once or twice uh, them crooked vultures, of course. Um, so yeah, the, the three pieces are live and kicking. We we saw a couple in the summer. Uh, Mercury riots, a band from California, where we're checking out, and Mother Vulture was the band we saw uh, opening. Rather, I saw you were you were still asleep, of course, Brian. Uh, <laughs> opening the Saturday of Steelhouse. 2022, they're amazing. So mm. much energy there. So, um, yeah. Notable, notable mentions, Brian? Notable mentions for me. Uh, you've covered you covered a lot of the bases. I would call out um, uh, a few bands, a few additionals. Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Um, I, th- I think Stevie Ray Vaughan um, picked up Jimi Hendrix's mantle and, and took it further into the, um, into the 80s. Um, uh, a guitarist... Who I interestingly, when he was in White Snake, uh, the only ever incarnation of White Snake that had one guitarist, <laughs> mm. which was with John Sykes. Um, John, when he left White Snake, put together Blue Murder, which was um, with uh, uh, Carmen Apice and Tony Franklin. Um, and uh, uh, two little shout out, uh, two uh, two shout outs to a, a band that's much maligned. And I don't think gets as much credit as it should do is Mountain. Um, mm-hmm. Leslie LaWest, um, Corky Lang and and Felix Papalardi, uh, who obviously I think Felix uh, famously produced um, Cream's albums. Oh. Uh, yeah, he produced some of Cream's material. Well, he was well known. And I think Leslie West uh, as a guitar player for many um, you know, when it obviously when uh, Leslie passed away, lots and lots of people, Zach Wilde, everybody came out and said, you know, what an am- amazing influence Leslie was to us. So Mountain were one of those one of those great bands, and uh, and finally, a uh, shout out to um, a band who are probably the let's call them the poor cousins of Rush. 
mm. which is Triumph, who I remember, yes. who I remember <laughs> seeing on footage for the Oz Festival in 1983, where you had mm. Ozzy for Ozzy's first first gig, or first proper gig with Jackie Lee. It was Jackie Lee's first gig. You had a young Motley Crew. You then had Judas Priest, Van Halen, and in amongst this, you had this nice band, three-piece, called Triumph, which has got Rick mm. Emmett, Jill Moore, um, with the, with the, the, the co-lead cool singers um, of Triumph. And they obviously high-pitched singing, very much a la, akin to Geddy Lee. Um, and that was my introduction to, to Triumph, uh, who I thought were a great band, and uh, uh, sadly are no more. So mm. those would be my additions to it. So Power Trails... Yep, you earn your money in a in a three piece band, nowhere to hide. Indeed, yeah. But of course, we've probably forgotten a handful. So if you uh, if you want to fill in the blanks, as it were, let's know on Facebook or on uh, Twitter at FTAG Pod, or even on Instagram, yeah. where you can find us. Of course, if you dig around. Exactly. Alrighty, so. We come to that part of the show. We do. Everyone's favourite part of the old podcast. I forgot to tell you, I was walking around um, Stone Dead Festival, you know, when we were there in the, the summer, and uh, bumped into quite a few people there. I bumped into the guitarist from Massive Wagon, Steve Hall, actually. I forgot to mention that. It's a nice guy. I bumped into a few other people, and they said to me, back, um, I want to talk to you about the uh, podcast. I said, okay, fine, of course. Um, very welcome. He said, uh, Brian's our favourite. I said, yeah, of course. And he said, no, our. <laughs> our favourite. I said, what do you mean, our? I said, no, everyone uh, stone dead, Brian's our favourite. I thought, okay, fair enough. And he said, the other part of the podcast we really like is... Hidden gym time. Thank you, Lola. Lovely voice, as always. So, uh, what you got for us, Brian? I, as my hidden gem... And you might argue with me, Matt, whether whether this is a hidden gem or not. But it's mm. a recent release, um, and it's a, a it's a remaster of an album that was released in 1977 in the height of punk, mm-hmm. and it is "Animals" by Pink Floyd. Now you might go, "Why are you picking a track? Why are you picking an album from Pink Floyd?" I just think for for somebody who I love Wish You Were Here, I love Dark Side of the Moon, and I love The Wall. In between Wish You Were Here and The Wall, Animals sits there, and it feels like the poor cousin. And obviously, it's been remastered, and finally, um, David Gilmore and Roger Waters could agree on the on the wording that would go into the book. So it took a bit of time coming out. It's come out, I've had a listen to it, and it's... It's a really, really good, it's a great album. Dark as anything obviously takes a lot of the, the concept is around Animal Farm and it's very George Orwell based. But mm-hmm. my rec- my recommendation for, for Hidden Gems is Animals. By Pink Floyd. By Pink Floyd. Very good. Very good, interesting. You're right, that's got a little bit kind of overshadowed by the three other kind of mega albums, Dark Side. Yeah. I wish you were here and uh, the wall, of course. So, uh, yeah, good shout. Thank you. What about good you? Shout. Well, <clears throat> do you remember back in 2020? Uh huh. 
<laughs> do you remember I could do that in 20 would uh, I think it was probably about episode five or something like that. Okay. I was talking about new new music yes. and um and a singer uh, by the name of Katie Pruitt. Yes. At the time had a song. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do, do indeed. Her? I do indeed. At the time she had a song out called Expectations, which I think from memory was one of my favorite songs of 2020. Um, in fact, it's one of my favorite songs of the last 10 years. And um, so I went back and listened to the album, which is also called Expectations, which is also from 2020. And I'm wondering why I, I've waited this long because it is absolutely beautiful. It's not your kind of classic rock album. We've talked about various metal and rock bands uh, even today on this podcast, but uh, this is a much more kind of, um, more sort of Jeff Buckley, I would suggest. In fact, there's a heavy Jeff Buckley, Grace era influence, which, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, because that's a fantastic album. And this is a great album too. Um, standout songs for me, Wishful Thinking, uh, My Mind's a Ship That's Going Down, Normal, Grace is a Gun, so, yeah, check it out. I really would recommend it. If you want a little bit of kind of Sunday morning, kind of wake up after a heavy night on the Jack Daniels and Coke type music, Brian, we've all been there. <laughs> and then check out uh, the album from 2020 by Grace Katie Perrick called Expectations. I shall put some of her material on the playlist. Oh, very good. I look forward to it. Good. So, Brian, that was it. Episode 37 done, dusted, in the bag. Speak to you next time for episode 38. Absolutely. In the meantime, everyone, please check us out on Facebook and on Twitter at FTATpod. And we shall see you next time for episode 38. Take care of yourselves. Keep on rocking. See everybody. Take care. Bye. This episode is dedicated to the memory of John Northwood. This is a Maylie Rogers production. <laughs>